There's a story about the University of Melbourne that goes something like this. In the late 1870s, the university decided to build a fancy new fence to keep out the young larrikins roaming the Carlton streets and protect the growing number of university students and faculty who were living on campus. So it erected big stone pillars for a gate. In fact, you can still see them on Grattan Street. And also a perimeter fence made of iron. But the people of Carlton, who walked across the campus every day to get between what is now Swanston Street and Royal Parade, were not at all happy about this. The Act, under which the university grounds were reserved, contained special provisions for the right of transit by members of the public. And in 1882, they made their rights known to the Crown Law Officers. Much to the disquiet of some of the professors, the Minister for Lands directed that a path be built right through campus, giving access to the residents of Carlton. Welcome to The New Social Contract. I'm your host, Tamsin Peach, and in this episode, our sixth in the series, we're asking who are universities for and who do they serve? Who is it that makes up the constituencies of a 21st century university? And what should different sections of the public be demanding from them? These questions go to the core of higher education's purpose. Do universities create communities? Or do communities create universities? And why might we be seeing the answers to these questions changing? Today I'm speaking with Jim Nyland, the Associate Vice-Chancellor at the Australian Catholic University and the Chair of Engagement Australia, which is the country's peak body for Australia and New Zealand university engagement. Its mission is to champion the unique role that universities can play in wider society by addressing contemporary global challenges through teaching, learning, research and partnerships. For a university to be meaningfully embedded in its community, it must be seen by that community as more than just a trendy title. Uh, Rather, it needs to constantly work at raising aspirations across the entire city region, because actually it's really hard work to get the community to think positively about the university. It's constant work. I'm also going to be speaking with Matthew Cox. He's the director of Logan Together, a collaborative initiative that aims to break the cycle of disadvantage in Logan City. The Logan Together project is hosted by Griffith University's Logan Campus, which is just south of Brisbane. The initiative brings together the university with community agencies and all levels of government, and its focus primarily is on improving early childhood development. Matthew chaired the working party that founded Logan together in 2015. And before that, he spent a decade at the Australian Red Cross, heading their community and economic development program. Uh, It always does baffle me a little bit that there isn't much more scaffolded and strong link to translation. Why would you develop that knowledge and then not do everything you can to see it used? And I think that's probably a broad comment about the tertiary sector and its place in society. Jim, could you start by telling us what you think universities mean when they talk about engagement? Engagement Australia are really clear what we mean by engagement. We draw very much upon the US-based Carnegie definition that sees engagement as very much part of universities' core business of teaching, of learning, and indeed of research. And the engagement bit describes the interactions between universities and their communities, 
be they business industry, government, not-for-profits, or other community groups, for mutually beneficial exchange of knowledge and resources, and in a context of partnership and reciprocity. So the term reciprocity is really important because for many years, I think, there has been a view that universities are the epicenter of knowledge and that they transfer that knowledge to communities. And we take a different view. For us, that's quite a one-way process. But we see engagement very much in a two-way process. So it's knowledge creation with our community partners rather than knowledge transfer to our community partners. That's our starting point. So you mentioned the communities that universities serve. What are those communities? I think it really depends upon the university uh, in the sense that uh, it's the strategy and mission of that university will really direct what communities they serve. But without a shadow of doubt, I think there has been a shift in recent times from global to more local communities. And uh, we certainly saw that in the bushfires here where universities did begin to step up and support their local regions and communities very visibly. And we find ourselves, I guess, uh, in these unprecedented times where we are forced to think local quite simply because our borders are closed. What I've uh, certainly learned is that great global universities are first and foremost great local universities. And I think making sure that's part of the mission and strategy of the university is really important to identifying those communities that we seek to serve. What kind of benefits do you think universities bring to those local communities not just in terms of teaching and research, but the kind of wider sort of non-academic jobs and impact on, on local economies. And how can that be made tangible? You know, education is now the third largest generator of GDP in Australia. And without doubt, uh, in recent times, universities have proven themselves to be really the economic engine rooms of our towns you know, and of our cities. It does go back to strategy, though, and I think one of the most impressive strategies in engagement uh, that we have in Australia, I think of the University of Melbourne and the strategy to create a health precinct, uh, or indeed in more recent times, an arts precinct, but one that works very much in partnership with business, with uh, industry, with not-for-profits, with think tanks, a whole range of different partners to create that precinct, it shifts the idea that the university is the single epicenter of the creation of knowledge, uh, but rather there's a precinct and partnership approach. And that strategy is a significant one because what it ultimately means is that, that resources will shift off campus in order to drive forward the city as a whole, I think. That's what I would see as a um, great example of you know, how a university can engage with its cities once it's identified the areas it wants to work in. I mean, one of the measures perhaps of a university that is really embedded in its community is that that community feels an ownership of the university. And perhaps when that university is in trouble, as many of our universities are at the moment, that community stands up and makes really explicit demands about why that university is valuable. Are we seeing that in the ways that you would like to see at the moment? I think for a university to be fully embedded uh, in its community, it's really hard work to get the community to think positively about 
the university. It's constant work and it does mean that we need to spend a lot of time out in the community to achieve that goal. And I'd like to see a lot more of that. I've spent my life on the community engagement side of the universities I've worked in. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity to do much more of that in order to build those aspirations of great universities and great cities and regions. And who should pay for this? Well, it, it is interesting to know that there are countries that have funded this, I think, in the UK of the Blair and the Brown governments in particular, who did generate large amounts of money for third stream funding in order to turn universities towards working and supporting their communities and industry much more effectively than they had done in the past. And I think as we are looking to the new normal here, whilst there is a focus certainly around online learning domestic students, but in particular around industry and and community engagement, I think there is certainly a government role to play in supporting engagement and moving forward in Australia. So I'm wondering how really there's another way to think about universities, which is that they are fundamentally both local and global institutions in that they're obviously located in particular communities in the ways we've been describing and they have to kind of serve those communities and their legitimacy as well as some of their funding as well as their enabling legislation comes from very specific polities. But Their legitimacy also comes from maintaining a connection to international and global knowledge. And if they can't demonstrate that they are retailers of international learning, then they're also unable to fill their local function. So I guess I'm wondering when you talk about the communities that universities serve, what is the place of the international in that? I think it's really significant. Clearly, sort of, you know, the microcosm of universities is very much, um, you know, a strong multinational, multicultural enterprise. Engagement Australia ran an event whereby we invited Professor Mary Stewart, who is a vice chancellor of Lincoln University, to present. And she talked about the things that she's done in Lincoln to try and capture that local and global. There, she opens the doors to Uh, the community, but also internationally. And it very much is a two-way conversation, two-way process of capturing what is of significance to the uh, public coming in and how the university uh, should respond. For her, there's no distinction between global and local, but rather the global challenges and the grand challenges, in fact, that as much that can be done uh, locally about them. And we think of, of course, some things like migration, which is a a huge issue, I guess, across the world, but uh, trying to solve some of those uh, issues uh, locally is one way of ad- one way of addressing some of those global issues. And of course, one of our past episodes was on on climate change, which is perhaps the archetypal global issue, which manifests in lots of local specific ways. But I, I guess I want to ask, maybe push you a bit more. I mean, publics don't necessarily agree with the Vice-Chancellor of Lincoln. I mean, is there a popular perception that universities should cater more to local students? What universities should do is uh, provide the platform for those conversations to take place. That's certainly one of the roles of Engagement Australia, I think, as well. There may well be contested views as to how we manage some of the, what we might call the, the wicked issues, the the wicked problems facing our society. 
Um, but providing that platform for those conversations to take place is really important. It's a democratic, um, I think, offering that universities uh, and networks of universities can provide. So I think as long as we can keep the doors open, the conversations going um, about those contested issues where we would want people to have differing opinions, uh, but to air them, I guess, in a very uh, respectful manner is one of the most useful things um, universities and networks like Engagement Australia can do. I mean, what we've been talking about really is sometimes referred to as the third mission of universities. There's teaching, there's research, and there's relationships with the community. How do you think that focusing on that third mission, um, putting it at the centre really of how universities think about themselves, changes what a university is and perhaps what its social contract is? But I would argue that it is very much part of our core business. And in fact, engagement would be the overarching banner of the university's core activity. And from that would flow teaching, would flow learning and would flow research. And I think that mindset just puts an added focus on the fact we need to work really closely with our partners and with the communities we serve in all of our activities. And so that mindset, I think, is worth fighting for, given the fact that within Australia, we're not funded separately. I know that in the UK over many decades, they did receive third stream funding that supported a lot of third leg activities. Uh, One of the benefits, I think, of not getting government funding to support this area here is that we can perhaps develop what, what we think engagement should look like As I say, I would argue that that's very much part of a university's core activity rather than being seen as an add-on. Is there an existential question here for universities that goes to the heart of their social licence? Like, where does the legitimacy of a university come from and how might that be changing? Universities have been around for a thousand years. They are one of the great surviving institutions that has survived many a catastrophe. For those of us who want to change universities in a different way, so that engagement is absolutely at the heart of everything that we do, I guess we have to see an opportunity in the current challenges. Uh, The opportunity being that we can come together very strongly with the communities that we serve. Because one of the things we are witnessing, I think, at the moment is that there is a strong bonding, I guess, of, of trying to sort of work through the current crisis together. And I think if we can do that with our closest partners, we might be in a lot better shape with regard to having very much a focus around uh, supporting each other in a new way once we get through the pandemic. Because I think the pandemic is not necessarily an existential problem. It, It shouldn't be beyond us to solve it with regard to the great sort of researchers that we have. But then it will allow us to maybe sort of have another look at those issues that are an existential crisis for us. Universities have a significant role to play, certainly around climate and around, around other, other issues that present a real challenge for our society. Many higher education commentators are predicting that there will be a, a real possibility that the higher education system that was put in place uh, in the 1990s will be remade in the wake of the challenges of COVID-19. And that could, of course, go in many different directions. And you've been laying out some of the ways you hope it might go. But what would you like not to see happen in, say, 10 years' time? What should Australian higher education not look like? I think the Australian higher education system 
is in many ways the en- the envy of the world. We have 40 universities in Australia, all of a really, really good standard. And when you look at um, other countries, perhaps there's a lot more variance in the quality of what you might see. So I, I wouldn't want to see a change in the system that uh, was trying to be so diverse that we actually end up with variable quality in our universities. It would be really important not to go down the route of teaching only universities. I think the broad activity of research, teaching, learning and engagement are elements that we absolutely uh, want to keep within our universities. The challenges are really significant, particularly for those universities who are relatively small and indeed Some of the numbers we're hearing with regard to budgets are hugely challenging, I think, for our our university sector. But I I would certainly want us to try and uh, maintain that excellent quality standard across our entire sector, rather than seeing it uh, divided in a way that would lower quality overall. It's fascinating to hear talk about a kind of diverse sector, but not a divided one. You know, one of the things some of those advocating reforms for many years now, not just in the context of COVID, have been saying is that Australia needs more diverse institutions. You know, this sort of settings, the policy settings of higher education are pushing universities to kind of all be a bit like each other. But it strikes me that the university you employed in, Australian Catholic University, is a bit different. And one of the reasons it's different, its constituency is in many ways in its name. So in terms of being connected to communities, um, having a sort of sense of workforce integration, the ACU is really there in some ways. Is it a model for how other institutions might rethink how they are and what they do? I think think in many ways it's been quite a straightforward process for us to think quite specifically about about our mission, about our vision uh, and about our strategy. So, I mean, for example, as a university creating our first international campus, for us it was pretty obvious that Rome would be the place to be, from our point of view, the mission, the vision and the strategy of the university really does I think drive forward our resources. Indeed, it drives forward our curricula. We are, I think, the largest producer of nurses and teachers in the country. Um, And of course, we offer a specific curriculum around health, business, law, uh, education. And in many ways, that health education sort of focus is uh, directed by, I guess, being a faith-based institution as well, in the sense that helping the sick and the poor, one of the greatest ways out of disadvantage, of course, is through education. So as the Australian Catholic University, we're very much a national um, university and a faith-based one as well, but uh, one that's proudly open to all faiths uh, and those of none. You know, um, this term anchor institution is one that's often used too. What, What does that mean for you and to what and for whom is a university doing that anchoring work? Well, I think the term anchor institution is one that doesn't uh, let go of its roots. So I think it's making sure that even though there are other drivers for for universities to operate internationally, that uh, we don't forget our roots, because I think the moment we do that, we are quickly reminded by our communities that if it wasn't for them, many of us wouldn't be here. I'm conscious of the fact that places like Western Sydney University, or indeed here, Uh, Griffith's Gold Coast campus only came about because of their communities who drove really hard against the federal government of the day, who perhaps didn't support uh, those particular developments at that time. But it was the local drive and the state drive to establish those enterprises 
that made all the difference. So I think we forget that at our peril. So being anchored in our communities means that we are able to fully engage uh, through curriculum, through robust research or socially robust um, research, and indeed in the resources that we can bring to bear. Because in my experience, universities can bring a range of benefits to the local community that really nothing else can. Yeah, they're one of um, very few institutions that can think across past, present and future. And I think that's what makes them remarkable. But we tend to talk about universities as bringing these kind of benefits and social goods. But what what if, if a community was interested in developing coal mining or something that may sit against what public policy objectives arguably are? How is an institution anchored in the needs of its community also anchored in a set of other priorities that might sometimes come into tension with the needs as expressed by that community? I would see those tensions as a good thing. And in that context, we should celebrate the differences and the fact that universities, unlike probably any other institution, can bring those different viewpoints in particular in this in in this post truth era that we find ourselves ent- entering in so that i think is is a really terrific role that universities can can provide that the the right platform for that uh, conversation to take place there's this phrase that is often used in connection with universities and that they're ivory towers which tends to sort of cast them as institutions separate from society and somehow elite in a precious palace but You've been talking about the ways that the foundation of many institutions in Australia was driven by community groups. And if I think back across the history of universities in Australia, you know, there was a long time when professors would sit on matriculation examination panels and research in Australia was completely about economic priorities and needs through the CSIRO and through state government funding. Universities have been embedded in their communities from really their foundation. So what's different about this? Knowledge can be found in a whole range of different ways. So there is an imperative for universities to partner in a way that they haven't done before to put the onus very much not on the university but on the university partner. And that does require quite a shift in mindset and a shift in resources with regard to how we think about knowledge and how we access knowledge in the future. So when I think about some of the developments here that we've been involved in, we've, I think in the, in the 60s, in the 1980s, the, the training for nurses uh, used to happen in hospitals. After that time, the training for nurses happened in university campuses. And what we are finding in recent times is establishing a presence alongside a hospital Uh, where perhaps the best education is not necessarily in a hospital or in a university, but maybe where those two areas come together is is a new way of approaching training and indeed, you know, knowledge uh, creation with our partners. So I think that there's a new model that's very much partnership based, quite different to the way that universities have practiced before. Um, Whilst I hate the phrase the new normal, because there is nothing normal about the current conditions we find ourselves in. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that we will not return to the old normal uh, once we work our way through and once we resolve this pandemic. And I think the new model that universities will have to adapt to will see 
universities partner more effectively and more obviously because I think in the end, universities will no longer be seen as the single repository uh, or, or the epicentre for the creation of knowledge. And is that the new social contract for universities? I, I, I think it is. So the social contract is, is, is very much, I think, in partnership with society individuals, communities, and the university and partners. And it's one that may identify those global challenges we must work really hard resolving and often uh, at local level or with local um, input. You know, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact we've had an explosion in online uh, learning. We've had a massification of higher education, uh, without doubt. What we haven't seen is a corresponding change within the curriculum of universities. And I think that is one that would have to change and would have to be focused far more on solving the wicked issues, those grand challenges that we've identified through universities' core activities of learning, of research and of teaching. At the start of the podcast, Jim described his definition of university engagement. He sees it as a two-way process and one which ideally happens through knowledge creation with community partners rather than knowledge transfer to community partners. One person who has dedicated the last five years of their working life to putting this into practice is Matthew Cox. I'm Matthew Cox. I'm the director at the Logan Together project, which is a child development project hosted and supported by Griffith University in Queensland. So Logan's a satellite city of Brisbane. It's about 30 kilometres to the south of the Brisbane CBDs between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. And it's an extraordinary community. It's one of the most diverse communities in Australia. It's a large refugee population and it's one of those communities where people come to settle when they first come to Australia. It's got a very strong Aboriginal and Torres Strait community and an enormous and vibrant uh, Pacifica community. A lot of Samoan, Tongan, Cook Islanders. About 10% of the entire citizenry of the Cook Islands lives here in Logan. Can you tell us a bit about the Logan Together initiative and how that fits into that community? So Logan Together, on the surface, it's a child development project. We're interested in kids zero to eight in our city. Quite a large city, uh, so there's 45,000 kids in that cohort. Uh, But underneath, it's really an intergenerational change project because we're convinced that the place to strike if you want to make lasting change in a community is very early in the life course. So we're interested in child maternal health, We're interested in uh, health care for kids and early detection of vulnerabilities or developmental delays uh, as they may come through in about the sort of two and a half to three age group. Uh, We're interested in more kids going to high quality early learning, particularly kindergarten, which in Queensland is that year before school. And then some of the foundational issues that are important for childhood, like stable housing and a reasonable income and some financial literacy in the household so you can make the most of your income. So those sort of Maslow's issues that underpin a good childhood. And we work with partners all across the community to make improvements in the experiences of childhood for every kid in that zero to eight cohort. And as I understand it, those partners include schools and health organisations and churches and local businesses and governments, but it also includes Griffith University's Logan campus. What role do they play? I mean, that you wouldn't necessarily think of a university as embedded in early childhood development. Uh, Well, Griffith's just been an unbelievable partner in this project and the capacities that most major universities has, but certainly this one, 
have are really awesome to deploy into a community change project like ours. Firstly, the physical facilities of the university are really valuable to this community. So our project's based on the campus, but the ability to convene large groups of people to hold meetings in all sorts of formats and forums to build understanding, well, that's really facilitated by a university campus, which has all of those facilities. The research and teaching disciplines that happen from this campus are directly relevant to uh, what we're trying to achieve for children. There's early childhood specialties, the midwifery specialties and nursing, social work, all of those sorts of teaching disciplines. And our project is about doing those things well in the community. So we've got on-tap relationships with some of the best people in the business and the ability to bring a wide stakeholder group from the community, from the service sector, from government, close up to that expertise is a formidable capability to have. Uh, then there's the soft power that the university has. It's a very big brand name. When Griffith speaks, people listen. And we've used that in an advocacy way on all sorts of issues over the years. How has working with the community perhaps challenge some of the assumptions that the university brought to that project? There's probably the broader issue of translation of knowledge that's worth talking about. And it does continue to strike me that the pursuit of knowledge and the discovery of knowledge and the building of practice wisdom is such a valuable resource for society and for community and for the community effort that we're putting in. Uh, It always does baffle me a little bit that there isn't much more scaffolded and strong link to translation. Why would you develop that knowledge and then not do everything you can to see it used? And I think that's probably a broad comment about the tertiary sector and its place in society. And I think there's much further we could go undoubtedly to really um, scaffold how that extraordinary resource of knowledge and practice wisdom can then be translated into action. One thing that is being talked about a lot, particularly in the context of impact, is embedding the problems of society within the process of knowledge development to begin with, which means universities have to perhaps listen a lot more to what their end users want. It seems that you've really worked on that relationship. How is that working out in practice? You talked about teaching and research as one of the major assets that Griffith has brought. How is Griffith listening to the community as it develops its teaching and research programs? Well, the key leaders in the university are sitting around the table regularly at our monthly leadership meetings, at many of our project meetings. I'll give you an example. We did a wonderful piece of work with our local health service, very much led by the expertise out of the midwifery service here at Griffith. And that was really turning the way that midwifery services were provided to a more vulnerable community on its head, really. It was taking midwifery services out of the hospital into very local community locations. Uh, And really a lot of the intellectual and practice excellence thinking and design that was put into that project came straight out of Griffith's midwifery school and the very deep links they have into profession. So to this day, the professor of midwifery, Jenny Gamble, a incredibly dynamic leader in our community and in the university, sits on the oversight committee that continues to monitor the performance of those hubs to build on it, to include students coming through that practice area. So it's a very dynamic, engaged action-oriented one. And I think that's what we've seen is um, it is relationship-based and it is 
dependent on some key leaders, but most good things in life are, of course. If you come to Logan, you'll see Griffith professionals sitting down with community service leaders, with mums and dads and kids, and making plans for the future and helping to execute them and thinking about how the resources of the university but also the, you know, the very best practice knowledge and wisdom in the world can be brought to bear to what we're trying to do here in Logan. What are the ways that it has become something that perhaps community members see as theirs? Well, look, I think some days I think there's more people on campus on community business than there are students. In a lot of our work, we essentially combine the perspectives of policymakers and sort of central government of local mums and dads and kids and community leaders and of the institutions that are there to serve them, the local hospital, the uh, local charities and service providers. We've got a phrase that, you know, whatever the problem or opportunity is, you want the people closest to that problem or opportunity to be involved in solving the problem. And I think it's a bit the same to the point about the direction setting in the higher education sector. Well, what's the problem you're trying to solve and what's the opportunity you're trying to grasp? And get those people involved and share the problem and, and the solution and share the costs of the problem and the solution with those people. And you'll come up with different answers in different contexts. But I think it's the ability to, to move quickly to grasp those opportunities and with agility. And that's the things that big institutions typically struggle with. But I think that's the 21st century, you know, local place-based nimble responses that involve local people is the way of the future. And we're only at the beginning of that journey. And we're proving that you can do it, at least on a small scale here in Logan. I think the opportunity is there to see the university as part of the human development journey that goes on in communities, that it's a facility that has a particular role in education at a particular point in life, but it's engaged in the problems, challenges and the opportunities of the community that it serves. Its doors are open to the community to use all of its resources and assets tangible and intangible, to make a contribution to community life. And I think once you're in that sort of space uh, and once you offer those capacities of the university into the community, then people will take it up. People will be innovative. They'll see opportunities and resources that a university can provide and they'll start making proposals for how the university can help. But that comes from basically a different conception of what the university is there to do, and that is to be part of the cut and thrust of daily life, to embrace the challenges and the opportunities that a community like ours has, and consider itself to be an actor in that environment. And I can see all of that going on on a daily basis, not just the leadership of the university, academics and staff right across the university get involved. And there's that culture, I think, of openness and outwardness. It sounds like the relationships you've built and thinking relationally has had a massive effect on the trust relationship between publics and the university. What do you think that means for government? What kind of demands, I guess, does thinking in this way place upon government? Well, I think it goes back to um, really any of the thinking and experience about what drives innovation is uh, relationships often anchored in a particular place and you get clusters of people in an ecosystem who are good at what they do, they learn about each other, they form relationships and then they spot their own opportunities and make that happen. So what that means I think for public policy is thinking about how to foster that at an institutional and a widespread level. How do you uh, allow universities to be part of that ecosystem, not dominate it? but be an equal and very valued partner 
in such an ecosystem. And I think that's got to be broadly embraced as part of the whole translation discussion. And I think if you can pull some policy levers that allow universities to not only participate, but even generate that ecosystem with other key partners, industry partners, community partners, the community itself, then that's the sort of the magic environment that starts doing good things. So in terms of government policy, I think a better balance away from just teaching and research to uh, certainly to translation. But I think that sort of civic actor role, how do you foster and encourage, incentivise and and ultimately pay for that to happen? What do you think the purpose of the university sector should be? I mean, how should it be articulating that purpose to itself and to its communities, particularly in the 21st century and under the guise of climate as well? I think universities are uniquely placed to try and solve Australia's problems and grasp Australia's opportunities. So could universities step back into that space in a way that does focus effectively on translation and not just on the traditional strengths of research and and knowledge acquisition? I think that's a pretty interesting question. Uh, Are universities here to to help solve Australia's problems and grasp opportunities? I think if the answer is yes, that sort of design principle would lead you in some interesting direction, in my experience. So I think the success we've had in our partnerships, inviting people into opportunities where they can live out their innate desire to connect with their community and be of service and have what they know turn into things that are done and see action flow from their knowledge and their expertise. So how to institutionalise it, that's always the hard bit, how to scale it from a set of relationships in one context to a a broader framework. But I think inviting people in from the community, from industry, from government, from partners into relationship, uh, letting that relationship grow over some years, it starts to do its own work. And I do think you have to be prepared to back the consequences of what you open up. If you open up those fantastic conversations and relationships and then you're not prepared to pursue them, well, I think just everybody gets a bit disappointed fairly quickly. But if you've got a willingness to pursue some of the opportunities that flow from those relationships, you'll find there's plenty of fields to play in. You do need to think about the mix of skills that you have involved in the university. Are there people who are connectors, who aren't just people with deep skill disciplines uh, and knowledge disciplines in particular areas, but who can connect and bridge disciplines and can bridge academia and the real world. Those connecting skill sets are very much a 21st century skill set. And I think, you know, if universities are going to pursue the sort of uh, role we're talking about, then somewhere those skills need to come into the mix and they need to be either from the outside and brought in or they need to be in the university environment and then look out. But if you've got the right people with that right mental model and you're open to pursuing it, you'll make your own luck. Universities have always been Janus-faced institutions, looking in two directions. One of their faces is turned towards the local communities in which they are embedded and which have specific social, economic and political contexts. The other face is turned towards the international currents of knowledge and scholarship, which universities dispense, advance and represent. Their legitimacy is grounded in both these constituencies. And when they lose touch with either of them, they usually have found themselves in trouble. The question to ask, though, is what do these two constituencies want and need from universities? 
That question was answered in one clear-cut way in an era in which only a few people attended university. But perhaps the answer needs to take a different shape in a society with mass education and ready access to information. I'm a big fan of the science studies scholar Bruno Latour, and his book Down to Earth gets a highly recommended status from me. If you want people to have some grasp of science, he says, you must show how it's produced. You must include everyone in the conversation about how we know. Perhaps it's time we followed the example of the residents of Carlton in the 1880s and stand up and say, this is our university. What we want the university system to do and what sort of training we want it to provide, how we will pay for it and who it's for, these are political questions in which we all need to have a say. Rather than just accepting the higher education system we've inherited, it's time to shape it in a manner we all choose. Thanks to my guests, Matthew Cox, Director of Logan Together, which is a whole-of-community initiative based at Griffith University and within the Logan community. And Jim Nyland, Chair of Engagement Australia and Associate Vice-Chancellor Brisbane at the Australian Catholic University. To continue this conversation we're having, head over to Twitter. You can find us at TNSCpod or send us an email at impactstudios at uts.edu.au. I also wanted to flag that there is a linked article for this episode by Jim Nyland and Verity Firth, who is Executive Director for Social Justice at UTS. She heads the university's Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion. To read it, head to the Conversation website. Next time on The New Social Contract, we'll be turning to different visions for the future of higher education in Australia. I'll be sitting down with Professor Attila Brungs, the Vice-Chancellor of my home institution, UTS, to discuss what universities want and need from government, what a new social contract between universities and their publics might look like, and Attila's vision for the sector, as well as what's keeping him awake at night right now. My biggest concern in the next little while is if you focus too much on costs, you can take yourself down a path that returns universities to a very elite, small amount of education. I'll be quite blunt. The rich upper echelons of society get a great university education. Everyone else gets a poor education. And there's very much a a schism in our society. Not only do you not need that from an equity point of view, not only do you not need that from an Australian cultural point of view, that destroys economic value. In this post-COVID world, we need all of our, our incredible people resources working for our country's prosperity and our national well-being. And also the Shadow Minister for Education and Training, Tanya Plibersek. Thanks for listening to The New Social Contract. Until next time, I'm Tamsin Peach. The New Social Contract is a podcast series made by Impact Studios at the University of Technology, Sydney. The production team live on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands were never ceded.